Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series through the offerings in Leviticus with a discussion of the fifth offering, which is the trespass offering. This one is particularly tricky, so Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the offering itself. They'll bring out several pastoral applications from the offering, and they'll show how it points to the last Adam. As always, we want to thank you for listening in to this episode, and here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the trespass offering. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. And uh, in this episode, we continue our studies in the Levitical system of offerings. Uh, We've been looking at the offerings, the five different offerings individually. We looked at the Ascension offering, or the whole burnt offering. Uh, We've looked at the Tribute offering, which is also called the Grain offering. We've looked at the Peace offering, which is also called the peace offering. Uh, We looked at the sin offering last episode, which is uh, sometimes uh, translated as purification offering. Uh, And the fifth one that we'll be talking about in this episode is the trespass offering, also known as the guilt offering. Uh, Sometimes it's called a compensation offering. And uh, we're going to be talking about, this will be the the last of the specific offerings. We're going to be spending a couple of additional episodes after this, talking about some passages in Leviticus where we see uh, a sequence of offerings put together for various purposes. Uh, The opening chapters of Leviticus give us the rituals for each offering individually, separately, but uh, they were rarely offered in that fashion. So at the beginning of the day, a, a a priest would go out to the altar and he would offer an ascension offering that would be the morning ascension offering. But in addition to that ascension offering, there'd be a grain offering or tribute offering added to that. So right from the beginning of the day, you have a combination of offerings. And then if you have uh, a larger event, the ordination of priests, uh, the, something, uh, a, uh, uh, a, uh, the end of a Nazarite vow, um, if you have some kind of celebration, uh, renewal of the covenants that you have in the days of Hezekiah or Josiah, uh, or the Day of Atonement, then you don't have just one single offering. You have a sequence of offerings, uh, and those sequences of offerings are worth exploring too. So we see the different offerings, not just in isolation from each other, but how they might work together. So we'll be doing a, a couple of additional episodes looking at some passages that lay out that kind of sequence. But to finish off the individual offerings, we're going to be talking about the trespass offering uh, in, this, uh, in this episode. Uh, this is a, a somewhat difficult offering to get a handle on. The others are difficult to get a handle on their significance or meaning. In this case, the difficulty is more basic. It's hard to, it's hard to identify exactly where the, the trespass offering, the Hebrew term is asham, where the trespass offering fits in and how it's actually done. If you're reading through Leviticus, you read through the four, first four chapters and you see one chapter after another is giving you uh, different uh, different rituals for different offerings, animal offerings and grain offerings. And then you get to chapter 5. If there's a fifth offering, you expect, well, we're going to get a ritual, that's a, a rite that describes how we're supposed to offer the other, the fifth kind of offering, which is the trespass offering. 
Uh, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get at the beginning of chapter 5 a series of occasions when uh, somebody becomes unclean and doesn't know about it. And then he comes to know about it. So there's some kind of unconscious violation. Then he becomes guilty or feels guilt in verse 5. And verse 6 tells us he shall offer his asham to Yahweh. This is the first use of asham, a guilt offering in Leviticus. He shall bring his asham to Yahweh for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a purification offering, a chatat. So it's difficult to know which offering is being required there. It seems to be, uh, suggest, it seems to be requiring both. Or the same offering is described both as an asham and as a chatat. Uh, and we have similar kinds of difficulties as we go through uh, further on in uh, chapter 5. It's, it's hard to know exactly where the uh, sin offering section ends and the guilt offering or the trespass offering section begins. If you look at uh, Leviticus 5, beginning of verse 11, then as we discussed last time, you have different animals that are offered for the purification offering. They represent different, uh, different levels of Israelite society, different status. Uh, and uh, verse 11 tells us, if somebody's means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for the offering for which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah fine flour for a purification offering. That's chatat. So we've already had the word asham introduced, which is a different sort of offering, but we seem to be still talking about the chatat. So the first 13 verses of chapter 5, you have this overlap of these two offerings, which is confusing. Uh, and then finally, it seems, uh, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 5, we get into the uh, trespass offering specifically without any intermixing with the purification offering. And that lasts, that continues on to chapter 6, verse 7. And then you get another section. But interestingly, in all of that, you have this, first of all, the confusion of sin offering and trespass offering. You're not, not quite sure which one you're talking about. And then when we finally do get to talking about the trespass offering, we're not told how to do it. We're told when it needs to be offered. And we're told something about the, the compensation that needs to be made in addition to the offering. But we're not told the ritual for the offering. We're not told the ritual for the, for the trespass offering until we get to the beginning of chapter 7, which is in the middle of a different, it's a, from chapter 6, 8 to the end of chapter 7, uh, Leviticus goes through all the offerings again, just as it did through the first uh, five and a half chapters, but it does it in a different order and with different details. Only with the trespass offering do we have the, the ritual described for the first time within chapter six and seven. All the others, the rituals are described in the opening in the earlier chapters. So when we get to chapter seven, we have a description of the ritual for the trespass offering. And then we read that and we think, um, this is a pretty colorless ritual. You offer the fat, the kidneys, the lobe of the liver. That's all the same as the peace offering and the same as the purification offering. Uh, you take the blood and you sprinkle blood on the altar. That's uh, Leviticus 7.2. That's what you do with the blood of an ascension offering and the blood of a peace offering. There's a, a meal with the priests. Verse 6 of chapter 7, every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. That's also true of certain uh, certain kinds of purification offerings. So there's nothing within the rite, and that's, that's basically all we have about the rite of the trespass offering. There's nothing within the rite that uh, indicates how it's different from the other ones. We've emphasized in the other offerings that the ritual itself 
highlights or enhances one part of the general, the, the common ritual. And that enhancement, that, uh, that expansion, uh, points to the significance of it. So the blood is highlighted in the purification offering because uh, the purification offering is about cleansing and blood is a cleansing agent. The burning is highlighted in the ascension offering because uh, the ascension offering is about the ascent of the worshiper into the presence of God and the burning is the ascension part of the ritual. The peace offering emphasizes the meal, but the, the uh, trespass offering the ritual itself, you can't tell from the ritual what this thing means. You can't tell what it's for. So I have to look for the meaning of the trespass offering elsewhere. All I've done so far is introduce complications and confusions uh, and haven't actually said much very positive about the trespass offering. Perhaps one of the mysteries of the trespass offering in relationships to the offering that precedes it, the purification offering, is the fact that the purification offering includes all these different animals except for the ram. And then the ram is absolutely central within the trespass offering, which maybe suggests they're supposed to be read alongside each other. Right. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's right. Um, and that would account for some of the overlap that I was describing in chapter 6, where you seem to have the asham, the trespass offering, introduced in a section that still seems to be talking about the chatat, the purification offering. I think Jim Jordan has helpfully described the relationship between the two, uh, the two kinds of offerings in terms of the kinds of sins that they're dealing with. We didn't discuss this in, at any, in any depth uh, last time. We were, were holding our cards close to our chest so we could discuss it this time. But in the last episode, we looked at the, the uh, purification offering, and that's introduced in chapter 4, verse 2, with this. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, and then it goes on to describe the ritual for the priest and the ritual for the congregation and the ritual for a leader and the ritual for a common person and so on. I'm putting the accent there on the unintentionally part. The chatat is for sins, uh, Jim Jordan describes as sins of wandering, sins in, in which somebody drifts away from God stumbles into a sin, not defiantly and deliberately, but falls into a trespass. It's the way the New Testament sometimes describes sin. Uh, falls into a trespass out of weakness. If that's the kind of sin you've committed, you still have committed a sin, but you need to uh, offer a particular kind of offering, uh, which is the purification offering, the chatat. And then if you turn to uh, Leviticus 6, the beginning of Leviticus 6, uh, you'll see a very different kind of infraction that's being addressed. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against Yahweh and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any of the things which a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and he becomes guilty. Uh, Mil Milgram suggests that uh, that means feels guilty. He, he's, he's weighed down by his guilt. Then he shall restore what he took by robbery. We'll look at the rest of that in a second. But notice that all, those sins are not inadvertent sins. Uh, you can't uh, lie about something that you found and you can't swear falsely about it and do that inadvertently. You might pick up something that you didn't know was somebody else's, 
You might forget something, but that's not the situation that's being described here. What's being described here is somebody who is deliberately taking something from his brother, and not only deliberately taking something, but deliberately swearing in Yahweh's name and swearing falsely. So these are high-handed sins, uh, that, and that's, that's, when, that's when the trespass offering is introduced, when there's a high-handed sin that's deliberate. So instead of being a sin of wandering, uh, Jordan describes it as a, a sin of intrusion or a sin of trespass. That's why the, trespass, the term trespass offering is appropriate. It's a sacrilege. You're intruding on God's name in this case. You're swearing in God's name. The other, the other examples in uh, chapter 6, verse 2, you're intruding on, a, on another person's property, not God's property, but another person's property. So there's a, a crossing of boundaries. There's a deliberate and aggressive act and a kind of sacrilege, actual sacrilege, taking God's holy name in vain, or a kind of quasi-sacrilege when you're intruding on somebody else's property. Uh, and those are the things that the trespass offering covers. Uh, sins that are high-handed, sins that are deliberate, rather than the sins of wandering. When we talk about Christ, should we see him as the ram of reparation? It seems as if the male lamb is very much at the heart of things like the celebration of the Passover in the story of Christ, Christ as the Lamb of God, um, the very first sacrifice associated with Abel, and various other key occasions, it seems to be maybe a the linchpin of the sacrificial system. Is there a way in which we should see um, the most fundamental sin that we're dealing with as that of the trespass of um, Adam that needs to be dealt with by a ram of reparation? Yeah, and I think you, you uh, gave the answer to the to the logic of it uh, by the reference to Adam. Um, Adam's sin is not... Uh, Eve, Eve's sin, Paul tells us that she was deceived. Uh, she believed the serpent. She was misled. And uh, misled without um, Adam intervening to correct and to, uh, and to, uh, to uh, confront the serpent's lie. So that's a that's a chatat sin. That's a that's a sin of wandering. Uh, she's it's not that she's not responsible for it, but it means that she was uh, she committed a different kind of sin than Adam committed. Adam had heard the prohibition on the tree directly from God, and he he took it from Eve. That's direct defi defiance of God. That's a that's a that's a high handed sin, and that's that's the kind of sin that. Is uh, requires an asham. You could say the one holy thing in the original creation, the one thing that God claimed exclusively as his, was the tree of knowledge, the tree of judgment. And uh, he claimed it exclusively as his, uh, I believe, for a time. Adam would eventually have been given permission to eat from that tree. But uh, for the time being, he was restricted, and he stole God's things, that's the kind of sin that the trespass offering is designed for. And so when we talk about, as you said, when you talk about Jesus as the, the ram of reparation or the lamb of reparation, that's the, that's the logic. You're comparing Adam and Christ, Adam commits a high-handed sin. How does a high-handed sin get atoned for? 
Uh, the purification offering doesn't do it, but the reparation offering is designed to uh, cover high-handed sins. Uh, one of the one of the ways that does that, um, one of the additional aspects of the of the trespass offering, uh, is that there is it, it involves an intrusion and, and and can involve robbery, as I was reading earlier, and in addition to uh, making the offering, a person who is robbed from his brother has to make compensation for the uh, for the wrong. So he's trespassed on his neighbor's goods. He's maybe literally trespassed on his property. He's certainly taken his things, and he's sworn falsely about it, and so he has violated God's name. The trespass offering is covering the violation of God's name, but then in order to restore things with his neighbor, he has to make compensation. So in, in uh, Leviticus 6, beginning in middle of verse 4, uh, he shall restore what he took by robber, what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which was found. He has to give it back, or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day that he presents his guilt offering. Uh, that one-fifth number, the 20% uh, addition, comes up at the end of Leviticus also. when you, If you vow something to the Lord, you say, this, prop, this field I'm vowing to the Lord, it belongs to the priests. Then you change your mind, and you want to move it from that holy status belonging to the priests back into a common status so that you can use it. You have to compensate, you have to pay it, pay back the price, but you have to add a 20% penalty or 20% addition. Uh, so there's a, that, that one-fifth uh, number comes up a number of times in Leviticus, and it's associated with uh, this, uh, uh, this act of, this change of status, something that's going from, an, from a holy status to a common status. Just to fill that out a little bit, the chatat, off the chatat, the sin, uh, uh, the sin that you commit that's uh, covered by the chatat makes you impure. Let's say you're in a state of purity, but you're not a priest. You're clean but common. That's the, the liturgical status that you have. You commit a sin, and you move in the direction of impurity, and a chatat moves you back to the status of clean but common. If you trespass on uh, holy things, if you take God's holy things then you're not moving toward impurity. Instead, you're moving toward a, a false kind of holiness. And what you need is an offering that moves you back from that status of holy back into a common status. And that's what the trespass offering does. So it, it's a, a, some have described it as a desanctification offering. Uh, you move from a sanctified state uh, back into a common state. And you do that by making compensation and then also by adding this penalty. So the, the one-fifth penalty is partly about the the compensation. But if you put this into the context of a of Israel's civil order as a whole, uh, the the crimes that are being described in the beginning of chapter six they are crimes. They're not they're not just sins, but they're punishable by law. It means robbery is one one uh, example in Leviticus six two extortion. That's 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 a crime that should be punished. But in the cases that are described here, a person does these things, then feels guilty about it. And if he takes action to restore the property before he's caught, he makes an offering, he restores the property, and he pays a 20% penalty. If he takes something through robbery or if he extorts something from his companion and he is caught, 
then he's a thief and he has to pay double restitution. Uh, you, so if you, if you make good on your own, if you take the initiative to make good, then there's a lesser penalty. You pay 120%, you pay back the thing and then you give 20% penalty. Uh, if you get caught without confessing it, without making it good voluntarily, then there's a 100% penalty. Uh, and sometimes more than that. Sometimes there's four and fivefold restitution for something that's stolen. And so there's a, um, there's a built-in incentive, a kind of practical monetary incentive for people who have committed these kind of violations to settle before they get caught. If they confess and make compensation, then uh, they, they, can, uh, uh, they can avoid the full penalty. You know, maybe this, this would be a, a way of thinking about, uh, an example would be thinking about Achan in the book of uh, Joshua, who takes things that belong to the Lord. Uh, he takes the plunder of Jer Jericho, which belongs to the Lord. If he had felt guilty, confessed, restored it, he could have made an offering and paid a penalty, and he wouldn't have been stoned. He does confess, sort of, but he confesses only after he's been exposed by a, uh, by a lot, and uh, that doesn't count. So that would be a case where I think he, you know, Achan could have not been a proverbial figure in the history of Israel if he had, uh, if he had just confessed and made restitution. So that's a, I think there's a, that's there's a some civil wisdom in that that uh, you think about the uh, the way that we design civil law and building in incentives for people who commit crimes to make make good before they're investigated and caught because the, uh, because the, uh, the penalty is lesser. Maybe uh, legal systems already do that, but that, if so, that's reflecting a biblical premise. The other thing that the reparation offering makes clear is the relationship between um, sins directly, more directly against God and also sins against one's neighbor. The first half dealing with those sins that are concerning the holy things of God and the second half dealing with pledges, um, lying, um, lying concerning pledges, robbery, extortion, these sorts of things which are more directly against the neighbor. But yet they're dealt with in ways that have significant similarities, suggesting to us, I believe, that we're supposed to avoid any um, restriction of certain sins to a merely horizontal plane even those sins that we um, might think of as purely having our neighbor as their their end if, if we set that right we also have to set things right with god and it's perhaps clearest here um in the law um that close relationship between the two yeah i think that the other the other um inside this gives us into into the nature of sin, As, again, going back to the comment that I made earlier about the difference of high-handed versus inadvertent sins, sins of wandering, drifting away versus sins of assault and, and uh, trespass. Uh, I think there's a great deal of pastoral insight there. I think uh, we, we do this instinctively, that we recognize that there are certain kinds of, certain kinds of sins that are sins of weakness. Uh, that people uh, simply fall into. Um, and Dante, I wouldn't. I'm not endorsing the entirety of the the moral scheme that Dante lays out in the in the uh, comedy, 
But uh, Dante distinguishes between sins of incontinence, uh, which are uh, sins where it's an excessive uh, love for something that's good. That's opposed to uh, sins that are direct violations of bonds of trust. The worst sins uh, are sins of fraud that we commit against people that we are in a relationship of trust with. So Brutus and Cassius are down being chomped on at the, at the, uh, at the center of the earth, being chomped on by Satan, along with Judas, because Brutus and Cassius betrayed uh, Caesar and Judas betrayed Jesus. They were in these bonds of trust. And that's a that's a more that's a more high-handed uh, trespass rather than a, a sin of incontinence. And I, I think historically the church has made these kind of distinctions. But I, that I think it's important to see that uh, that's not just a kind of soft um, sentimentalism, but that's actually rooted in the law. Think of the Mosaic law as being kind of hardcore and uh, tough, and it is in many ways. But it has these built-in encouragements and built-in insights about different different sorts of sins and even different sorts of crime and different sorts of responses to crime that give us wisdom for how to deal with different kinds of uh, uh, different different kinds of pastoral situations and I think different kinds of situations in civil law stepping back perhaps a bit and thinking about the fact that the ram present within this offering and then other animals within the um, purification offering how should we 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 look very much at these specific rites, the particular um, rites that are performed for specific types of sin or specific occasions, specific persons. But yet, how can we put the picture all together? If you went to the tabernacle, I presume you would be experiencing something that was quite, there was quite a sensorily powerful experience, lots of blood, um, you hear bleating and other noise of the animals. You see a lot of different types of animals. Um, how was Israel supposed to learn from that very physical, very um, visceral, um, sensory sense or experience of um, the sacrificial system? We're dealing with this on the in the cleanliness of the page, but with the noise of all these creatures around you and the sounds and the smells and the um, appearance of the sacrifices. It's a very visual and sensory experience. Mm -hmm. How do we maybe imaginatively inhabit that? What might Israel have learned from putting these things together within that, that experience? This isn't, this isn't addressing that question. I'll try to take a stab or two at it. Just a, uh, thinking about again about the trespass offering more specifically, one intriguing unique aspect of this trespass offering is that it's uh, not included in sequences of offerings. You're, generally, it's done prior to the beginning of a sequence of offerings. It's it's kind of it is kind of isolated. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the person who's offering it would be alone at the tabernacle. That would not be the case, uh, or that uh, there wouldn't be other offerings going on. There would certainly be other offerings going on. But it's it is it in its use in the tabernacle. It is somewhat isolated from the sequences, uh, as we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. Typically, or very frequently, you see a purification offering followed by an ascension offering followed by a peace offering. That's the order that you have in various places. Uh, and the trespass offering is kind of an outlier. That might be another hint of what you were saying earlier, 
earlier, Alistair, that uh, the compensation offering or trespass offering is in some ways kind of central to the whole system. It's what what's it's what uh, brings the worshiper into a, the right status in order to even approach to offer a purification offering. Um, so yeah, I don't think enough about the questions that you, the question that you asked, and I need to force myself to think more. It's uh, my my attention is caught up with trying to figure out the words on the page, and I need to think more about the experience of it. One thought, of just reinforcing what you say, going to going to the tabernacle must have been in some fashion similar to uh, spending a uh, spending a morning uh, touring an abattoir. Um, you know, uh, there's. Uh, animals uh, screaming, blood, dung, entrails, the, all the things that, um, it's a butcher shop. I wondered that that's, um, <laughs> to wax Hegelian for a moment, uh, Hegel describes history as a, I don't remember the exact phrase, but something like, like a, a charnel house, yeah, an abattoir. History is a charnel house. There's a, of slaughter and death and dismemberment. And I, I wonder if that, uh, that, I mean, that's, I think that's on the page of the text, but I, I think that would be viscerally brought home if you were actually to go to the tabernacle and participate in, the, uh, in a feast, for example. You would be struck, I think we would be struck, I don't know if an ancient person would be struck, an ancient uh, person who spends most of his life around animals wouldn't feel it as much, perhaps. But uh, I think certainly we'd be struck by the sheer scale of slaughter that's juxtaposed to festivity. So um, there'd be animals being slaughtered, blood being splashed, animals being burned, and in the courts of the, of the temple and surrounding the temple, there'd be people eating, drinking, and rejoicing before the Lord. And those two things are, are not uh, you know, separated for us. We're, uh, we have the luxury of eating, drinking, and rejoicing without having to without being part of, usually without being part of the slaughter of the animals that we're eating. But those two things juxtaposed, that's one of the things that occurs to me that would be a, that would be a powerful sense of uh, the, the cost of uh, peace with God, the cost of festivity before the face of God. Ultimately, it's the cost that God himself pays uh, for our, our presence, uh, for our, our, uh, ability to come into his presence. So that's, that's one obvious thing that occurs to me, that, it's that just that, that juxtaposition, I think, would be, uh, would be striking, although probably less so to somebody who's used to butchering their own animals. Uh, but uh, I think it would still be overpowering, um, even, even in that case. When we think about the way that blood was very much forefront within the sacrifices, that might be another area that we can see that juxtaposition being significant that within their feasting within their eating there was the very pronounced blood taboo that um, they practiced that they would not eat um, consume blood but yet blood was so important within the rites of the tabernacle and the sacrifices that it would I suppose it would have a more they would have a more pronounced awareness of the significance of the involvement of blood within these things than we might have in the same situation. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple other things uh, that uh, are unique to the trespass offering. And that is the 
the role that uh, confession plays in the trespass offering. This is a comment, again, that Milgram makes about the trespass. He says that confession is the uh, act by which a high-handed sin becomes something that can be atoned. So a high-handed sin is a direct violation of God. It's a trespass on his property. It's taking God's holy things. And if you commit that kind of trespass, then God holds it against you. But there is still deliverance, but it's, uh, there's a sequence of a need for feeling guilt. That's the way that uh, Mil- Milgram translates the phrase, uh, become guilty, uh, throughout this passage in uh, Leviticus 5 and 6. There's a sense of guilt. There's confession of sin that's required, which is not mentioned. It might have been done in other cases, but it's not, uh, not mentioned in, uh, in the case of other offerings. And then compensation is made. Uh, those things kind of transform a high-handed sin into a, a sin of inadvertency, a sin of wandering, at least in the, in the Lord's estimation, so that it can be atoned for by, uh, by an offering, rather than simply the person being, uh, being uh, punished for it. There's a, there's, there is a way, in other words, to be, um, to be covered and redeemed from high-handed sins. Adam can be redeemed. Adam can be atoned for um, that was one thing. The other thing I wanted to point out was um, uh, I had mentioned the idea of desanctification. I just wanted to point to one place where that idea is, uh, is implied or the, the kind of situation that I was referring to. At the end of Leviticus 6, um, this is within the law of the purification or sin offering, but it describes a situation that has to do with the flesh of a purification offering. Now, verse 26 says, The priest who offers it shall eat it, it should be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh becomes consecrated. So if you're a priest, that's okay, because you're already consecrated. And if you touch it, your hand is already uh, smeared with blood so it can touch holy things, so it doesn't, doesn't affect you. If you're not a priest and you touch holy food, uh, holy meat, then you're consecrated, and that's, that's a dangerous position to be in. It goes on, and when any blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you should wash what was splashed on it. Um, So you can become inadvertently holy. You can become holy by contact with most holy things. Uh, Most holy things are contagiously holy. And that's an occasion where a a trespass offering will have to be offered in order to desanctify the person. If If you're not a priest and you're put into this consecrated position without without proper preparation, without the proper rites, uh, that's a dangerous position for you to be in. You need to, holiness is, uh, put you under stricter requirements. Uh, priests are under stricter ceremonial requirements than lay people. They're under stricter, uh, somewhat stricter moral requirements. And if you're put in that position, uh, it's a dangerous status to be in, and you want to get out of that. You want to stop being holy, <laughs> and you want to desanctify it. Not stop being holy in the moral sense, but you want to stop being holy in the status sense, and you want to desanctify from that holy um, status. And the the trespass offering is the offering that's used to do that. So it's going in the opposite direction again of the of the purification offering. Let me draw just one uh, highlight one thing that we've already discussed that uh, kind of brings the trespass offering home, and that is the uh, the way that it 
um, uh, as Alistair's pointed out, the, the specific animal that's used in the trespass offering points us ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the animal that replaces Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Um, Abraham finds a ram. Uh, it's one of the animals that, that's used for Passover, and that becomes the paradigm animal to describe Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb who is, ascends into uh, heaven at the, uh, at the beginning of Revelation. He's the, the Lamb who brings his wrath against his enemies in the book of Revelation. Uh, and those are specifically uh, linked to the compensation or the trespass offering. Lambs or, or rams could be offered as ascension offerings. They could be offered as peace offerings, but they're required in the case of the uh, trespass offering. And uh, so the trespass offering points us to Jesus and his offering, which compensates for our high-handed sins, compensates for our trespasses. Uh, and as we confess our sins, uh, that compensation, Jesus' own compensation, Jesus' trespass offering, um, is uh, where we participate in that and we're restored to God in spite of our defiance of him. So the, the trespass offering, again, is has a kind of, it's unique in a number of ways within the, uh, the system of offerings, and it has a kind of centrality uh, pointing us to Jesus as the last Adam, compensating for the sin of the first. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.